Hi, everybody, and welcome to Martin Van Dyke Undercovers, produced in partnership with the Ann Arbor District Library. Beer Money by Francis Stroh is a memoir of a city, an industry, and a dynasty in decline, and the story of a young woman's struggle to find her way out of the ruins. Francis Stroh's earliest memories are ones of great privilege, shopping trips to London and New York, lunches served by black-tied waiters at the Regency Hotel, and a house filled with precious antiques. Established in Detroit in 1850, the Stroh Brewing Company by 1984 had become the largest private beer fortune in America and a brand emblematic of the American dream itself. While Stroh was coming of age, the Stroh family fortune was estimated to be worth $700 million dollars. But behind the beautiful facade lay a crumbling foundation. Detroit's economy collapsed with the retreat of the automotive industry to the suburbs and abroad. And likewise, the Stroh family found their wealth and legacy disappearing. As their fortune dissolved in little over a decade, the family was torn apart internally by divorce and one family member's drug bust disagreements over the management of the business, and disputes over the remaining money they possessed. Even as they turned against one another, looking for a scapegoat on whom to blame the unraveling of their family, they could not anticipate that even far greater tragedy lay in store. When I began my interview with Frances Stroh about her new book, Beer Money, I began by asking her to give us a history of the Stroh Brewery Company. It all began in 1850 when my great-great-grandfather, Bernard Stroh, came over from Germany with a family recipe. He settled in Detroit, and he started brewing beer in his basement, and he sold it door-to-door out of a wheelbarrow and saved every spare penny to buy a horse-drawn carriage and within a number of years had a whole fleet of horse-drawn carriages. Later, his sons took the company through prohibition by making malt syrup for home brewing purposes and ice cream. So that's where Stroh's ice cream came from. Many will remember that, still around. And Lo and behold, it became the third largest brewer in the U.S. by the 80s, just behind Anheuser-Busch and Miller, and was, you know, really a brewing giant in the U.S. with about 45 brands at that point. But unfortunately, through a combination of strategic, poor strategic decisions, as well as just a very very competitive brewing environment and, and you know, sales environment in the 80s took a nosedive, and we ended up selling out to Pabst and a few brands to Miller in the late 90s um, for very little. We'd actually been offered a billion dollars for the company in the mid-80s and sold for far less than that at the end of the 90s, and most of that went to pay off business loans. So it was quite a trajectory. It's it's just shocking that that Stroh's could could have survived the depression in in the 30s but but not not have not get beyond that decades later 
hard. It's true. It really is. It's I, and it, so much of that just had to do with taking either the right risks or the wrong risks. And unfortunately, subsequent generations of family members would run the business. And ultimately, um, I think you know the the being a regional brewer versus a national powerhouse we just got in over our heads and mm. and took on too much debt that's what happened when was business at a peak was there a certain year or a certain decade when strokes was at a peak i would say 1982 83 we were really at our peak at that point and that's when forbes valued the company at about 700 million which of course you know now they say that would have been worth 9 billion um in today's dollars so that's where the 9 billion figure that everyone's throwing around comes from mm-hmm. now intro- introduce 1071 listeners introduce us to to your family to your mom and dad and to your brothers who you write about in your book uh yeah so my um my parents were um, very different when it came to the handling of money. And so we got these very mixed messages uh, because my father was a big spender and loved to collect all kinds of things from vintage Martin guitars to guns from the Wild West. He had big collections of um, both guns and guitars. And I think a lot of this had to do with the way he was raised because he came from a fairly strict household where he wasn't allowed to play country music in in the house or in the car. And his parents hated it. And he wasn't allowed to dress up as a cowboy. And so he was really just trying to fulfill this childhood fantasy in many ways as an adult by owning all of this stuff. And uh, and so I'd go on these extravagant shopping trips with him in New York and London, antiquing and and you know while he collected all of these beautiful objects that filled our house, but my brothers and I really weren't allowed to touch them. And then my mother on the other side was very careful with money, even frugal, and um, and so you know she would hand me downs from our, her friends' children for us to wear. And, you know, they were great hand-me-downs, so that was, that was fine. But we would drive on to, you know, Florida and Martha's Vineyard on vacation. We never flew. Sometimes we'd stay, we'd stay on a community center floor if she hadn't booked a hotel. Or I, once I remember staying in the back of the car in a parking lot somewhere. And, um, and, you know, we just sort of got by with her and lived this very adventurous life in a totally different way. Than the, than the time that we spent with our father, and they sort of polarized each other around money, and we get so these mixed messages. In many ways, I think um, I try to sort of emphasize that in the book by using my father's photography as beautiful images of the family, this idealized. American family represented in these pictures that I use as chapter openers. And um, and so there's this sense of, you know, perfection and, and everything's going great. And then there's the truth-telling text, which is just very honest and candid about what the issues were that the family was facing, that, you know, we just kept swept under the carpet 
because that's how people did things back then, and that was certainly the trend in my family. There's much focus on 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 the the just the, the tragic situation involving your your brother um, Charles, who, and it's 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 something that um, has happened to so many families where where, where there's a, a drug issue, and it's something that um, that family member just cannot shake, and uh, it's 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 just so painful to to read about his um, long long term demise. Oh, were, were you were you closest to him with your three brothers? Is that is that fair to say? I think that is fair to say. He Charlie from day one just really really had my back and was always such a lovely brother to me. And you know I loved all of my brothers, but Charlie and I were the closest. And he was sort of the one that would protect me when my father was in a bad mood and, you know, take me up to his room and we'd string beads together and look at books together. And so it was just, it was so, so heartbreaking for me to watch this slow motion catastrophe, which really was his decline into drugs over a period of decades. And... Certainly when he was busted by the federal government for dealing cocaine while he was in college, it was a huge tragedy for my family. And my parents, of course, didn't want anyone outside the family to know that that had happened. And Charlie was able to avoid going to prison. But um, So that was something that was just not talked about, and we were sworn to secrecy. And so um, now on my book tour, I often read that that passage where I'm 13 years old and writing my high school application essay about this very thing, about the fact that my brother has been busted for drugs and I'm not allowed to talk about this. And, you know, really the shame and secrecy in the family and how much this hurt us and really tore us apart. And um, and I think that impulse to tell the truth and really get at the truth about my family and about what happened to us began when I was 13 years old writing that, that high school application essay that asked for me to tell a story about something that had changed my life. And that was the thing that had really changed my life. Mm-hmm. Did, did you seek out the, the approval of your surviving family members before you started this book, Francis? I actually had the support of yeah. all of my immediate family through the writing of the first draft. My mother's been a huge champion of the book all along. Oh, that's great. And so, and I published a chapter about two years ago through a publisher here in San Francisco, and both my brothers acted supportive. So I felt as if, as I approached the publication of the book, I had everybody's support. I'm not sure, you know, how everybody feels now. I'm still waiting. My mother's the the only one who's read it cover to cover. I have heard I've heard from a couple of cousins who've acted very supportive since the book came out 3 weeks ago, and I'm, you know, comments are dribbling in. So, I'm waiting to hear from people over the next couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. It is masterfully written. Is it is this your first complete book that that you've ever written? Have you written anything else? It is the first 
full-length narrative wow. that I've written. I had written some essays and short stories prior to this and worked on a novel over a period of time, but I really think the novel, which I mention in the memoir, it was my way of learning, of really teaching myself how to write a long narrative and how to develop the craft necessary to create scenes with dialogue and full fully developed characters and passages of exposition and description because it's a very different thing in a full-length book than it is in a short story and it, it's a it's a skill that needs to be developed over a period of years and working on this novel really helped me to do that so then when it was time to write this book that I'd known I'd always wanted to write I had the skills to do it and um, and that made it I think much easier mm. The, the book right near the beginning or at the beginning of the book is this it, um, just gripping um, sequence where where you, you describe this piece of installation art, which, um, wow, it, it, it really seems to summarize like all of the, the family dynamics in, in this one piece of art that, that you created. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I was an installation artist for many years before I started writing really as my my main creative outlet and and so I made this piece in my mid 20s where I videotaped each of my family members just their mouths talking, telling the family story. And I asked question after question that they answered, and everyone was asked the same questions. And then I turned the camera on myself, and someone asked me the same questions I'd asked my family. And then I edited together everybody's responses. And, and so when you went into this darkened room in a gallery, what you experienced was six big video screens with six talking mouths on four walls telling this family story from each family member's point of view. But these family members are actually airing grievances and saying things that to the camera that they would never say in front of each other. And so the explosive effect of these six voices all in the same room talking was overwhelming. It was beyond anything I ever would have expected. And I think it really sort of opened up almost a can of worms for me around the emotional issues in the family that we had just sort of managed to sweep away and not deal with. And suddenly everything was out in the open in this in this room in a gallery space. My parents came out for the opening and of the show and um and I think I think that was the point in time when I realized okay there's material here that we all have to deal with somehow and as time went on I realized you know the family really is coming unraveled not only is the business completely falling apart but so is the family it was really clear to me in that piece and I hoped I think on some level that making the piece would open up the conversation about where we were going wrong, where we were assigning blame, where it was unfair, because really the mythology within the family at that point was that Charlie's drug bust led to my parents' divorce, which you know really led to all of the problems we were having, and it just wasn't fair. You know, we were all on some level 
I think, and this is true in all families with an addict, everybody, like, carries some level of responsibility for that person's behavior. And um, and it's really something that families who, you know, with an, who struggle with addiction or an addicted family member have to cope with. There's a tremendous amount of guilt, and so then they, they blame somebody else instead of taking responsibility. And it, it just wasn't, unfortunately, possible to fully open up that conversation, and things just kept getting worse. Mm-hmm. Do you, you live in San Francisco these days? That, that's right, Francis. I do, yes. What, what are, you're coming back for, for the book tour to events here in Ann Arbor and, and Detroit. What, what are your feelings when you come back home? Is it, is it, is it painful? Are you able to have some, some happy memories when you come back here? Man, there, 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 there's Absolutely. a lot of stuff. That, yeah, you are good. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, it was a wonderful place to grow up in so many ways. And, you know, the proximity of where I grew up, Gross Point, to Detroit, and the fact that I could, you know, when high school came around and I could drive, I spent so much time down in Detroit and was so influenced by by the city in my development as an artist. And so now coming back to Detroit and seeing what an amazing story of self-reinvention it is in such a short time and being able to get involved with organizations like 826 Michigan, who actually um, some proceeds from the book are helping them build a new tutoring center in Detroit for kids from underserved backgrounds um, for free tutoring after school. And being able to participate in projects like that in sort of this recreation of Detroit as a viable and important city is very gratifying, especially when throughout my entire childhood and coming of age, Detroit was this tragic story sort of crumbling in the background. And, you know, it just kept getting worse um, after the automotive industry moved to the suburbs and abroad. So seeing it reinvent itself with a much more diverse economic base now is very exciting. I'm Martin Bandyke and thanks for listening to Martin Bandyke Undercovers and our interview with Francis Stroh about Beer Money, a memoir of privilege and loss. This has been a presentation of the Ann Arbor District Library.